Welcome to FedSpeak, the Canadian edition, brought to you by MI Market News. I'm Greg Quinn in Ottawa. With me today is Robert Asselin, Senior Vice President of Policy at the Business Council of Canada. The council represents some of the nation's biggest companies, uh, such as Bell Canada, CIBC, and Enbridge. Robert, in the past, has worked as an advisor to a lot of ministers, the finance minister and the prime minister, known a lot for his uh, strong economic advice. So, uh, Robert, if why don't we start with something that a lot of CEOs, a lot of government officials, and a lot of Canadians were worried about last year and, and has spilled into this year's, this double whammy of high inflation rising interest rates. People may recall the Bank of Canada hiked seven times last year. They said it'll take a lot of time to get inflation back to where they want it to be. The government has said it wants to avoid new spending that makes these problems worse. How do you and the business community see inflation evolving this year? Is it is it going to be a lot less painful than it was in 2022? Thank you for having me, Greg. It's it's, uh, it's always fun to to discuss these things with you. A, a couple of things in in answer, trying to answering your question. The first is, I think inflation has been uh, much more difficult to predict than most people, most models will lead you to believe, which is it has been more persistent, and I think uh, it leads to behavioral changes that happen in the economy when people believe that the economy becomes anchored, in other words, uh, will stay there for longer than anticipated, and then they change their economic decision as a result of it. And so I think when you hear uh, the Federal Reserve, when you hear the Bank of, Ga- Bank of Canada governor, it's very much uh, uncertainty. I mean, they can't say that uh, too openly, but you can you can sense that there's, a, there's an uncertainty in the forecast, and now they predict uh inflation and how soon uh can they really lock the rates uh before they will uh eventually go down if there's a recession or if there's an economic downturn i think that's the the first point the second point is that there's a lot of geopolitical uh events uh that are hard to uh take uh, into account when you do these models of forecasting and predictions so you think about the war in Ukraine, you think about China and how they are playing into the global economy. Uh, you think about this energy transition that is very costly, that we are st- just starting to really go about. And you have in Western countries, especially in Canada, aging demographics, a labor force that I find is very uh, difficult to predict uh, what we are seeing even in this uh, high rate environment. I read compared to where we were two years ago or one year ago, uh, is still a very tight labor market, uh, almost full employment. Canada employment numbers are really good. Uh, So that leads you to believe that things are a bit trickier to predict than, you know, what usual normal economic circumstances would lead you to to think. Uh, so, So I would say that I think even the Fed, uh, where they were six months ago, is not where they are today. In other words, uh, I think there's a consensus that rates will stay higher longer to control inflation as it was the expectation maybe six months ago. And uh, I think we need to be very humble in predicting the, the near future. We've been looking at this idea that, you know, Interest rates have been rising in a lot of countries and and governments, including in Canada, have have looked at, at pulling back fiscal policy. 
you know, we saw a pretty stark example in the U- UK where investors didn't didn't like a perceived clash. Do you see a chance that it, in Canada on, on a lesser scale, there could be a clash between fiscal and monetary policy? And It's a very good question. I, I do think that people really need to understand how important it is for fiscal policy to be aligned with monetary policy. I think in Canada, when you, you've been uh, following what the finance minister has been saying lately, I think the government is more acute to this reality. But the fact of the matter is, if you look at uh, the government's spending in the economy compared to where it was in 2019, let's say before the pandemic, and you agree that all the COVID help is now most uh, mostly out of the equation, in other words, it has been phased out of the of fiscal policy, it's still expansionary in a sense that Government spending at the federal level is still very important. I calculated around 140 billion more than it was pre-pandemic. So, in other words, what the government has spent over the last budget is still making its way into the economy. And as a result of it, even if they're saying they're not spending it more, fiscal policy is still very generous. And as a result, I think is not helping necessarily on the inflation side. I'm obviously not arguing it is the main cause, uh, but it's not necessarily helping. If maybe we pull all these things together, inf- inflation is tricky, fiscal policy is where it is. That doesn't sound like a recipe for a lot of relief on uh, inflation or maybe even more particularly interest rates this year. Is that fair? I think it's very fair. That That's certainly how I see it. Um I think the central banks are a bit in a bind in a sense that for their own credibility, they need to see financial markets and uh, market participants really believe that they are tightening. And so when you see when you see stock markets going up on any given day, I think for a central bank, it's like, oh, they didn't get my message. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I need to make sure they do. And, and you keep hearing them at their press conferences, you know, look, uh, this is not over. We're not done with this. We need to keep at it, and, and so uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't fight uh, central banks on this because I think they they need for their own credibility to really show uh, everyone, especially market participants, that they are serious about bringing this down to their to the level it needs to be. And, and just to remind people, we're still at levels. Yes, it it's really it's going down relatively. In other words, acceleration of inflation is diminishing. Uh, but it's still much over the target. You know, in Canada, we're, we're at uh, 6%. In the U.S., a bit higher than that. Uh, we're still far from the 2% target. To dig a little more into fiscal policy, we figure there's probably going to be a budget in the next couple of months. And, you know, the economy is getting somewhat back to normal. The government for a while has touted its, its, its last uh, so-called fiscal anchor lowering debt as a percentage of GDP. But the International Monetary Fund and some experts I've spoken to have said this is something of a dubious anchor. Would it help business confidence if there was something meatier in the next budget on on deficit control? And is that something you think they will would actually put in there? Yes, I agree. Debt to GDP ratio is not as good in the current circumstances of rising interest rates. Because when you think about deficits uh, and what happens when you lose control of them is really when interest rates rise and the amount of payments you have to make on your, uh, on public debt becomes unbearable or more difficult. It takes a higher proportion of your spending overall. This is certainly what happened in the 90s uh, under 
you know, when, when Minister Martin had to make these drastic cuts that he did in, in the 95 budget. And so I think in the circumstances, an anchor, a fiscal anchor that would be focused on the interest payments as a percentage of how much you're paying uh, overall would be a better anchor. And David Dodge, a former Bank of, Ge- Bank of Canada governor, has suggested that 10% would be a reasonable anchor. And I think this makes sense. So the, the other thing about the debt GDP ratio is that We've gone to about, uh, before the pandemic, I think it was around 30% of GDP to now about 46, 47. And so it's easier to say after it's going down because you've, 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 you've made the uh, numerator much higher. And, and so that matters and how you think about that anchor as well. I, I, and the last thing I will say, Greg, on this, and I think this is important, is it wouldn't take much for the fiscal framework, in my view, to get off a bit. And what I mean by that is, let's say uh, the economic assumptions the government is making over time are not as positive in terms of growth, uh, for example, or let's say the per the per capita spending keeps uh, going up, and certainly in the last few years it has. Uh, or let's say that again inflation stays higher, and the you know ten year bond yield stays uh, over three percent. All these factors will make that it will be trickier than most people assume. Like we don't have yes, we have the LT fiscal framework right now, but it wouldn't take much to make it. I think more a bit more shaky as a result of what's happening uh, fiscally and economically. The last um, fall economic statement laid out a scenario, you know, taking us closer to recession. The government has has suggested that we could avoid that, but they might be prepared to step back in with more stimulus. Yeah. I mean, that seems like a very tricky balance. How do they, you know, what do you think is the fault line for them to consider coming back in with more stimulus or trying to, to ride out a, a growth slowdown, which, which, which most people say kind of takes us right to maybe even zero growth for the whole year. Yeah, I think the real question there is how long and how deep uh, the a recession would be. And obviously, it's still question whether there'll be a recession. I've always been of the view personally that in a scenario where historically has been so difficult to bring down inflation at the level that it is now, a, a soft landing would be very difficult to engineer. So bringing uh, down inflation the way it, it needs to be brought down, I think, is a big enterprise. Then the question the question becomes, you know, if you if you get into a recession, how severe will it be, and how long? And, and I think then you go to fiscal policy for some answers. If it's longer, if it's deeper than uh, most people right now are predicting. Uh, and I say this with a grain of salt now because I think forecast, even from cent- a central banker perspective, is something that needs to be revisiting, <laughs> revisited uh, qu- quite often. Even uh, Jer- Jerome Powell uh, in his last press conference was saying that he didn't think he would be in this position six months ago. I, again, I go back to my uh, kind of a humility point about forecasting what's going to happen. You mentioned the, the U.S. economy. Um, Prime Minister Trudeau is meeting President Joe Biden. You know, they're going over a, a, a list of things they want to work together on. But there's also been tension going back to uh, the NAFTA negotiations that were quite difficult. And currently, Canada's trying to do something in response to the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act. You know, if you're worried about growth in Canada, you think you can grow abroad. There's what's going on in the U.S. And Canada has yeah. also taken a, a a more assertive stance 
against China. So how do companies manage growth outside of Canada at at a time like this where trade is, uh, is, is going, going back backwards in the eyes of some people versus, you know, a a free trade era? I mean, this is an important question. Trade competitiveness in general in Canada has been on the, on the decline. In other words, our market share, both in the U S and globally has been going down and trade has not been a significant source of economic growth in the last few years. That's very worrisome because as a nation, as a fairly small uh, nation, trade is really important. We don't have a, a big enough domestic market to to carry uh, the day here. And, and so these geopolitical developments, I think, are super important to understand. So you mentioned the U.S.-China competition. I think it's obvious that this is, if if anything, this is going to be overdone a bit in a sense that it seems to be a doubling down on each uh, side uh, on the on the competition, and it poses a certain number of risk on the world trading order uh, because once you decouple on some of these big supply chains, then it it takes time to rebuild them, and it's not necessarily efficient. I mean, it'll be more costly on products and consumers, and that is in essence also very inflationary if that's the direction it will take. Canada has to think about its own competitiveness more seriously in terms of where are the next frontiers of economic competitiveness. In other words, where are the productive sectors going forward and how Canada can compete? We're never going to be able to compete with the U.S., obviously from an equal to equal perspective. But I think if you think about where the economy is going on energy transition, if you think about sectors where Canada needs to perform uh, I'm thinking about clean tech, biotech, ag tech, for example, where there's high intensity of R&D and, and productivity. I think this is where you need, this is how you need to think about, as opposed to uh, just be content with essentially what we have now, which is a too, an economy too reliant on, on consumption and real estate, uh, where gross capital formation is about 40% in real estate. I think that's way too high. And, and, and so the, the question then becomes, how do you foster these private investments? from companies and how you scale companies to have enough investment uh, to make a, a significant difference. So those are big questions. And this is where I think the debate on industrial policy is really interesting right now. I did I did want to touch on that. Uh, minister Freeland, the finance minister, has said the next budget has to focus on not just the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act, but what she's called a strong industrial policy Mm-hmm. Um, and themes like uh, friend shoring. So I think a lot of companies might applaud those kinds of moves. But what are what are the kinds of things the government could do that would be most most helpful to boosting competitiveness? Let me just say there are a lot of things they could do that could be really harmful. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. In a sense that I think overreach, overregulation uh, are things that could be detrimental to business investments. You don't want government to overplay its hands. But there are things I think uh, that work historically around, for example, uh, how you foster private R&D in the economy. How do you try to stimulate industrial research investments? I think those are kind of, again, in productive sectors where you need to focus on, for example, you know, helping energy companies do uh, carbon sequestration, uh, making sure that our, uh, our farmers have the technology and that companies uh, are can benefit from our public R&D and, and commercialization the, the technologies at scale so that we have a competitive agriculture sector. Those kinds of targeted, uh, I I would say, focus 
ways of doing industrial policy are much better than trying to, for example, provide subsidies or give, you know, companies, throw at companies a bunch of uh, new programs that are unfocused. So I, so I think the, the way, the how is as important as the what here. And what the Americans have done in the Chips and Science Act, I find is very impressive, which is really doubling down on R&D, uh, on their ability to kind of bring intellectual capital into economic outputs, which is how really economies are are bound to become more productive. So I, I hope Canada gets aside or leaves aside a bit of it, of its complacency and becomes much more focused and sophisticated when it comes to industrial policy. One last corner I'd like to touch on is uh, we have a big a big immigration target now, seemingly. Uh, you yes. know, while this can help economic growth, you can also think of the squeeze we're already facing on on housing. Is bringing in uh, hundreds of thousands of immigrants a year, boosting that target, is that going to be a successful strategy for making Canada's economy uh, more 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 resilient and productive? Yes, I think immigration is an important part of uh, of an economic strategy. Uh, but I think immig- economic immigration is really important in that you need to uh, really bring high skilled to the extent that is possible, uh, deliberately bring high skilled, uh, highly educated folks into Canada. Uh, and research shows that that boosts uh, innovation, it boosts productivity. It raised GDP per capita and it lifts all boats. I, so, so I think the question should be as much as the on the quantum, but on, on the quality as well. And, uh, I think we're very fortunate as a country to be able to have broad social cohesion on acceptance of Im- immigration. Nobody's seriously contesting this from a from a political view in Canada, from major parties. Uh, so we have to build on it, but we have to be very thoughtful about, uh, as you say, going about addressing the housing supply problem, the healthcare problem, uh, making sure that uh, people who come here can deploy their skills, their talent. I think that's a good place to 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 wrap it there. And um, maybe compared to last year, a bit of a more upbeat out- outlook, which is great. Yeah. This has been the FedSpeak podcast by M&I Market News. You can reach me with feedback at greg.quinn at marketnews.com. If you like the show, tell a friend. Uh, hope to be with you soon. And uh, thank you very much, Robert, for being my guest. It was my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me.